for sure. Um, I wish I had a crystal ball to be able to tell you that. Welcome to the Agricultural Economics Podcast here at Purdue. My name is Valerie Kilders. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Agricultural Economics as well as your faculty co-host. And today I'm joined by Colby, one of our student co-hosts. How are you doing, Colby? Pretty good. Enjoying the last few weeks of the semester. Yeah, I am looking forward to winter break. It's Mm -hmm. definitely coming up on us. And after Thanksgiving, it ramped up a little bit again, but now it's calming down. Did you have uh, some good Thanksgiving holidays? Yeah, it was great. Uh, We had a good time with family, and then my cousin got married over the weekend. So that was a good good, um, gathering of you know, all the family and everything like that. So it was great. Nice, nice. Did you have good food? Yeah, we did have good food. I, in college, I don't do as well, you know, making food for myself. So having the opportunity to go home and eat what yeah. my parents and grandparents made was contributing to more meals than I've had in a while, so. Fair, fair. <laughs> do you have any college staples you eat? College staples? Yeah, when you're uh, here. Eggs, they're pretty, eggs? pretty quick and easy. Yeah. Well. Yeah, I agree. I love eggs. And talking about eggs, we actually have someone on here today who can tell us all about eggs, especially what has been going on with regulations and egg prices. We have Dr. Aaron Staples, who is an assistant professor at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Hi, Aaron. Nice for you to come on. Yeah, thank you for having me. And wow, what a smooth transition that was. Right? Almost as if we've done that before. <laughs> No, but seriously, eggs are definitely um, a very common staple among the students that we have here. Uh, I mean, it's easy, it's quick. You can even somehow figure out how to make them in the dorm. Worst case in the microwave, although that can go horribly wrong. So (laughs) (laughs) I definitely an appreciated food here. Now, I said you know everything about eggs, but I mean, there's more to you. But generally, can you maybe tell us a little bit more about yourself and then tell us a little bit about the study that you did on eggs with regards to producer attitudes as well as generally expectations for this new cage-free production transition that we're seeing across the country? Sure. So thank you again for having me on. Excited to be here. Uh, As you mentioned, I'm an assistant professor at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Most of my research focuses on uh, consumer preference, food policy. Um, so this study in particular is part of a larger project supported by the United Egg Producers, the Food Industry Association, FMI, and the United Egg Association, assessing the broad effects of transitioning to cage-free eggs. When we talk about cage-free eggs, we're talking about the way that eggs are produced, whether the hens are in cages, so conventional cages, whether they're in enriched colonies, which are bigger cages, or whether they're able to roam around the facility, what we'll call cage-free. This all stems from animal welfare debates that have really started to pick up steam over the last two decades. In the egg market, 10 states and many of the largest U.S. retailers have started to impose, whether it be legislation or pledges, to transition to 100% cage-free sales. So this project has four researchers on it, myself, uh, Drs. Vincenzina Caputo at Michigan State University, Jason Lusk now at Oklahoma State University, and 
Glenn Tonzer, now at Kansas State University. And what we really wanted to do here was provide a holistic perspective of this transition. We're gonna get insights from the consumers and from the producers. The study we're going to talk about today here focuses on the producer side of things. So, so where we did interviews and surveys with various egg producers across the United States. Specifically, what we did, we're interested in understanding producer attitudes, expectations, beliefs about this transition and the implications that it may have. For the interviews, what we did was sit down with producers well, via Zoom like we have right now. And we had 45 minute to 75 minute long discussions with these egg producers one-on-one. -on -one. We structured them around four main themes where we first wanted to just know about their business profile, how many egg or how many hens do they have on their farm. Then we wanted to dive into comparing conventional versus cage-free facilities. So things like how much labor is involved, how much more feed is involved. And then we got into their business plan and relations with their buyers and the perceived future direction of the industry. So specifically for this case here, we're interested in knowing what their perceptions are with the total percentage of eggs that will be cage-free by January 2026. This is an important date because many of the states and the retailers set these deadlines to their legislation or their pledges to January 2026. Once we did all of those interviews with the producers, those one-on-one -on -one interviews, what we did was aggregate the results, try to look for common themes, and then we developed a survey instrument that we would send to a broader range of US uh, egg producers, which allowed us to get a better or clearer statistics to kind of support some of these qualitative findings that we got from the interview. Yeah, you did an amazing job there explaining the methods and the process and kind of the overarching like goal of what you guys were trying to attain in this study. And I'd be curious to find out a little bit more because I believe this is published now. So what are some of the um, important findings that you ended up concluding from the survey instrument? Yeah, so the I think the biggest thing that I got, so we've spent a year and a half now working on this big project, trying to get all these different papers published. And the thing that I've really realized is just how complex this dynamic problem is, having to understand the perspectives of all these different players across the entire supply chain is just so important to understanding the market dynamics, the way that this is going to play out as we get closer and closer to those pledged deadlines. Um, but in terms of looking specifically at the producers, when we think about production, we're trying to think about how producers are going to get their product to market. Uh, so one thing that commonly comes up is the cost of production. Producers commonly said that there were going to be higher fixed and variable costs associated with uh, cage-free production. And we're talking about fixed costs. These are things that are going to be like the construction of new facilities for cage-free eggs. Uh, when we're talking about variable costs, these are things that are going to vary depending on how many laying hens they have at their operation. This will be things like labor and feed. And those were two of the big variable costs that uh, producers commonly mentioned. Uh, labor, many of the producers said that cage-free facilities require two to three times more labor than conventional facilities. 
And one producer explicitly said that it's a different type of labor. They said that it was more of a, quote, animal husbandry role with cage-free because you're more hands-on and the birds are kind of roaming around that facility, so you need to manage that. Producers were also very cognizant of the dynamic relationship of this transition, the fact that we can't just flip a switch and all of a sudden be cage-free. They commonly said that they would take two years to build these new facilities and that there would be a, a need to ramp up this transition from, we can't just go from what we're at right now of 35% to all of a sudden be 100% cage-free or as the industry, some old papers have suggested, roughly two thirds to three quarters of the industry needs to be cage-free in order to meet all of these pledged deadlines uh, and goals. So they said it would take two years to build these facilities. We need to ramp this up. And because of this, because they're cognizant of some of the opportunities and as well as the challenges associated with cage-free, um, producers just don't think that we're going to meet those January 2026 deadlines. In fact, when asked about their perceptions of what percent of the industry they expect to be cage-free, they said roughly 51%. And in fact, retailers are starting to adjust those deadlines accordingly. So issuing some public statements saying, we're going to have to delay this just based on the industry dynamics. Of course, we also had a global pandemic that was thrown in the middle of this type of transition. A lot of these pledges were made in 16 through uh, 2022 or to where we are now, I guess, but trying to ramp up that production just was slowed down by the pandemic. So you just mentioned quite a few challenges that producers are encountering, right? Like simply from the infrastructure perspective, the labor, all of these are severe. And I mean, they're especially labor we're meeting across the general act sector where that's a big issue that we're having. However, if you're now saying, okay, we can't meet this thinking like an economist supply and demand, right? There's a higher demand than there is supply. Would that kind of mean the ones that have made this transition to cage-free eggs might have the opportunity to like reap higher prices for their eggs? How would that look long-term? Are there any other uh, opportunities or benefits that we might look at? Any insights here for us? Yeah, that's a great point. I think in terms of the opportunities, when we talk to these producers, they commonly listed three different opportunities. The first was on innovation and entrepreneurship, um, whether it be creating specialty niche categories for eggs. We have all these different egg labels on the market. There could be some sort of avenue there for the opportunity. And then especially on the innovation side, we're talking about labor needing two to three times more labor in this space. There's the opportunity for advancements there in terms of robotics to help with the whether it's egg collection or just making sure the facilities are clean and sanitary uh, the second sort of opportunity here is to get a reset with the animal activist community uh, demonstrate egg producers commitment to animal welfare remove some of these the oldest equipment that is in the industry and then the last one uh, really gets to your point on uh, the supply and demand and the economies of scale um, and the fact that depending on a producer's size, uh, the transition could be an opportunity to gain market share. And what we mean here is that 
some of the largest producers, if they're transitioning, you can benefit by spreading those fixed costs over a, a larger plot uh, or a larger uh, flock. And this could potentially lead to additional industry consolidation, which is an additional challenge that is gaining a lot of interest right now. But when we talked to producers, many of them were willing to switch over to cage-free if they hadn't done so already. But the biggest thing are these challenges that are in front. And the biggest challenge that they commonly said was customer demand and commitment. When we're talking about the customer here, we're not talking about the consumer, the end consumer that is eating the eggs. We're talking mainly about the retailer. We're thinking about the shell egg market primarily, the fact that consumers will go into the grocery store and they'll get their eggs bring back home. Okay. But when we think about that relationship from the consumer going to a retail outlet, retail outlet getting their eggs from the producer, that's the relationship. The upstream relationship is what we're interested in. And there's this funny thing where consumers sometimes say they want something, but when it comes time to pull out their wallet, they're not really willing to pay more for it. Something commonly referred to as this vote buy gap. They say they want something, but really when it comes time to pay, they just want a cheap option. They're the college student that wants the cheap eggs to bring back into their dorm and hopefully not cook in the microwave. Yeah, um, I sure hope. So that was one big thing. Uh, a lot of the producers that we talked to stressed this fact that they need to have contracts in place with their buyers because the second related challenge is the capital and the financing of this. There are higher fixed costs associated with cage-free production. You're building these massive facilities to house cage-free production. In order to secure some type of loan, sometimes producers will need to demonstrate that they have a long-term commitment in the form of a contract. So if they don't have that in place, they're not just going to build this with the expectation that eventually in 2026, the market will be cage-free. So there's going to have to be this ramping up period where producers and retailers are constantly communicating about this dynamic transition. The fact that the fact that there's a, a wedge between what the consumer is saying they want and what they actually purchase. And we're going to need to be slowly increasing that and moderating or modifying the overall amount of cage-free in the industry, we can't just all of a sudden be to that 75% mark that would be implied by that January 2026 deadline. Another challenge associated with cage-free, according to many of the producers, is a trade-off with environmental factors. The fact that cage-free facilities are going to need more water, feed, and also land. The reason they need more land is that we're reducing the stocking density. And you have you think about what you can fit in a conventional facility, but then you remove all the barriers and you are having a facility where the hens can roam free, you can fit less birds in that cage-free facility. So if you're going to keep the same amount of total production, you're going to need more facilities, which requires the more land. So that is why they're thought to also have a higher carbon footprint. So producers mentioned a potential trade-off with environmental factors, which is also supported by some past studies. And the last one 
was food affordability. The fact that there are higher production costs, oftentimes higher production costs on the farm are passed down to the consumer in the form of higher prices. And because eggs are supposed to be a cheap source of protein, it could be seen as regressive and felt the most by the lowest income group. So I have uh, two questions for you here, kind of going off what you said and also thinking about like a consumer perspective. Who are the voices that are guiding this change in the industry? Like who's calling for more cage-free eggs in production? And then also from a consumer perspective, how much does knowing if eggs are cage versus cage-free, how much does that actually affect the consumer purchasing decision? Is it actually an important thing to the people purchasing? Those are two great questions. In terms of who's calling for this change, there's actually a lot of different voices here. I'd say the loudest is animal activist groups such as the Humane Society for the United States, but also there's just an increase in consumer willingness to pay for these attributes among a portion of consumers. So not all consumers necessarily care about this attribute and are willing to pay more. And I'll talk more about that in a little bit, but there is a growing segment of consumers that are concerned about animal welfare attributes in their food. Retailers are also feeling more pressure for social responsibility. So to address things like animal welfare issues, but even egg producer groups or egg industry groups have made calls in the past about establishing um, some animal welfare guidelines. So for instance, back in the 2010s, while not talking about cage-free, but just increasing minimum size standards or uh, sorry, federal minimum space requirements, some industry groups joined forces with the Humane Society for the United States to try to pass some federal legislation. It ultimately didn't end up making it into the then farm bill, but there are a lot of people that are concerned about this and they're trying to make change with the industry to put forward in the right direction in terms of animal welfare. But it's when we're talking about these sort of unfunded mandates um, surrounding it, whether it be the forced transition or the the hard pledges to get to this goal, it's we need to kind of let the market figure this out um, and slowly get there. But to get back to your point, on the consumer perceptions, how much does it matter? It depends on the person. Some consumers care about this a lot, some not at all. Uh, some are willing to pay a large premium. They see the higher price on the shelf and they're like, okay, I'm still willing to pay that because I know that that label there is a certification that these hens had enriched or enhanced um, farm animal welfare attributes while to produce this egg. But some consumers, they go into the grocery store, they see all the eggs, all the different labels, and they're not concerned about the labels at all. And they're just like, what's the lowest price? They're gonna grab that product and get out of the store. And then we also talked a little bit about that idea of the vote by gap. Some consumers saying that they want it, even saying, hey, I would support a pledge to go cage-free. But when it comes time to then go grocery shopping, they're still picking the one that is just the cheapest, which could, give some sort of maybe suggesting some sort of lack of knowledge around the implications or maybe even lack of knowledge around the meaning of the labels. And that's actually something that we explore in one of the other studies is the consumer perceptions or misperceptions of what cage free implies. Yeah, I'm excited to, to see that study 
come out and then read more about this. But like you said, right, we have different types of consumers. We're coming to the market. We have different expectations. Are we going to pay more or are we, or are we just going to, for the cheapest um, eggs we can get? And especially looking at what happened end of last year, beginning of this year with egg prices, we've went through a period where we had really high egg prices. Now that back then, mostly attributable to what we saw with the bird flu, right? Now we're switching production systems. What are we gonna expect if we're looking at the market, right? I think that's the, the key question everyone wants to know is will we see higher egg prices? Are we gonna remain where we are? What do you think? Another great question and one that's really difficult to say for sure. Um, I wish I had a crystal ball to be able to tell you that intuitively, Right? We're thinking about the fact that we're restricting on-farm practices. You restrict on-farm practices, you're raising production costs. Studies have shown that those higher production costs are sometimes passed down to the consumer in the form of higher prices. Now, the cage-free side of things in terms of animal welfare, this isn't the first time that policies have been implemented for animal welfare attributes in the egg market. If we go all the way back to 2008 was the first time California passed Prop 2 through a voter referendum. And that called for enriched colonies, so bigger cages that allowed them to exhibit kind of natural behaviors. Proposition 2 was paired with another piece of legislation called Assembly Bill 1437, which then said not just eggs produced in the state of California, but all eggs sold in the state of California had to come from these enriched colonies. Okay, so that is a type of animal welfare. It does the exact same thing. It's restricting an on-farm practice that could hypothetically lead to higher prices down the supply chain. And studies that have looked at those pieces of legislation have generally found that in the short term, there's going to be a price increase in eggs. That is what they find. And then as as we go on towards the long run, that increase tends to diminish over time. So it's returning closer to the older egg prices as we kind of see this quote unquote new normal as the market adjusts. So with the cage-free transition, it's really going to depend on a variety of factors, right? whether these pledge deadlines are hard or soft, given the fact that retailers have already started to scale these back would suggest that they're kind of a soft pledge deadline. And we're just going to have this constant communication across the supply chain, across different stakeholder groups, policymakers, to try to figure out the best foot forward to get to where, uh, I guess the market says it's going to end up being. We've had a lot of talk today about eggs and I greatly appreciate your insight on eggs as I am a fan of eggs personally, but so it was nice to hear some of your thoughts and everything about the study. But I'd like to turn the tables here for a little last question and closing remarks. You yourself are a fellow Boilermaker and you are on the Purdue Ag Econ podcast. So I feel like it would be wrong if I didn't ask you about your time getting your master's here at Purdue, if you could give us, you know, maybe a couple things that's your favorite things about Purdue or kind of how it helped prepare you for what was next or just whatever you would like to share to close us out here about your time at Purdue. Yeah, boiler up. So I would say my time at Purdue, I did my master's. I was at Purdue from 2018 to 2019. I really enjoyed my time in West Lafayette. My master's cohort was absolutely phenomenal and still some of my closest friends. We still do Secret Santa together, and this is four years now removed from the program, which 
thanks for asking that question because that reminds me I need to do that buy my secret Santa present. <laughs> but yeah, being at Purdue really helped me prepare for the next step. I ultimately knew that I wanted to pursue a PhD. And during my time at Purdue, I had an incredible advisor, very supportive advisor, very supportive committee members that really helped me prepare my thesis to the point where I was really knowing how to engage in this research process and developing skills that I knew I could take to ultimately end up being at Michigan State to do my PhD. In terms of my favorite things to do at, at Purdue, I did my undergrad at a super small liberal arts state college back in Massachusetts. So the Big Ten environment was a lot of fun in terms of the sports. So that I'm a big sports fan. So being in the Big Ten environment, going to Mackey, going to some of the football games was just so much fun and times that I will never forget. I think the cactus has since closed down after it's I left, back but up, so you'll have to. Come oh, it's back open back up. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, cactus was always fun. Harry's was a great spot for lunch. So those are some of my favorite places to visit. Things to do around the area. Oh, I can't leave people's people's brewing out in out oh, Lafayette. Yeah. Oh, yep, that's a great place. Thank you for sharing that. And it is awesome to hear. We always love talking to a fellow Boilermaker. It's great to see where they're all ended up. I mean, hey, you were here just a couple years ago and now you're an assistant professor in Tennessee. I mean, that's amazing to hear. Thank you so much for telling us about your study. I learned a lot. I hope Colby did as well. And I know our listeners will. So thank you for your time. And like you said, boiler up. (laughs) (laughs) hammer down of course uh thanks for having me and it was great talking with you thank you thank you